So first of all, I see my dad in every kid. But most of all, I do see Jesus. I mean, I took that message to heart that the way that you treat another human being is the way that you're treating Jesus himself. I mean, that is scripture. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, so before we get into the episode, I would love to set this up a bit. We are talking with Andy Bales, who is the CEO of the Union Rescue Mission. And the Union Rescue Mission is the largest rescue mission in North America, located on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Now, a couple of stats that are worth mentioning here. Los Angeles County is America's homelessness capital, Okay. Uh, on any given night, there are an estimated 58,000 people experiencing homelessness. The Union Rescue Mission is this incredible space on Skid Row, uh, which is a little less than a mile wide. It's sort of the epicenter of the most violent and most intense homelessness in L.A. Uh, so there's about 2,000 people living in this little stretch this little space uh, known as Skid Row. It's less than a mile wide, 2,000 people, um, nowhere near enough toilets. Uh, It's sort of like a tent city, uh, but even tents would be um, a generous way to describe what they're living in. It it was, honestly, it was like nothing I've ever seen um, in North America. So that was pretty intense, but the Union Rescue Mission serves about a million meals per year offers about 250,000 nights of shelter per year. And their commitment is that there will not be a single woman or child who stays on the street, no matter what that means. Okay, enough talking about Andy. Let's listen to Andy. Enjoy. Well, Andy, thank you so much uh, for spending time with us. Um, We do have, so if we have any questions, we'll pass this to you, and this will help capture your question. Great. But um, I thought maybe we would start with um, just a tiny bit of background for like 30 seconds on what they're doing. So the 12 congregations represented here, 12 communities, and they all have distinct sort of groups of people that have been marginalized in some way that they have felt this burden to pursue. Great. And we started our time. So this is the first time that we've all been together as a group. So wow. they just were awarded the position. You act like you're all great buddies. Well, yeah, we've gelled pretty well, pretty, pretty quickly. It's pretty wonderful. Um, but so, you know, there's folks looking to work in the foster care system, folks with, uh, working with young people with disabilities. I mean, a, a beautiful variety of people groups that they're pursuing and looking at what would youth ministry look like if we started with that kid at the center as opposed to trying to integrate them into something right. else and just yeah. make room for them in a way that they would have to assimilate. So one of the reasons we wanted to come here is because you have so clearly uh, reoriented your life and so many other people's lives around people that have been completely marginalized. 
Um, and it seems to me that they have very much become the center. Yeah. Right? And the way in which you talked earlier about experiencing the risen Christ in someone, you can't leave them on the streets. So on, on some level, I'd love to have you share with us from your perspective this biblical rationale, this way of thinking and seeing people where you encounter Christ in someone. Because for us, at least for me, walking around today, there was a few times where I, I don't, I, it's hard to see. I, I, I want to see. Um, I want to expect, I want to anticipate Christ in, in this person. But maybe it's intimidating or scary or feels so different. Thanks and somehow you've been, yeah, that's, yeah. It's a, I feel embarrassed about that. I don't want to admit that, especially to you of all people. Good Lord. Um, but, yeah, I want to be able to see in that way. And so much of the work that we've been doing is to say, how do we begin to see with the eyes of the Lord in that way? So whatever you hear in there, just <laughs> run with uh, that. That's great. <laughs> and, and what caused Flagler College to have this program besides the Lilly Grant? Just <laughs> you did it? Yeah, well, Mary and I put the proposal together, but it's really the, the teaching of Martha. Following after Martha. Yeah. So it's, the, it's a culture and a community. It's amazing really yeah. oriented us to young people in the margins. Yeah, so I guess just like you have hope in, in the kids, the youth that you work with. See, my dad was one of these kids, right? And his last week on the face of the earth, all he could talk about was the shame and embarrassment and pain of being that homeless kid. So every kid I see, and maybe this just rubbed off by osmosis from my dad, because he didn't tell me about it until on his deathbed. But every kid I see, I see that could be my dad. And they could, they could be like my dad and become one of the best human beings that's ever lived and follow Christ and dedicate, dedicated my life to Christ while I was in my mother's womb when he had a heart change. And uh, so first of all, I see my dad in every kid. But most of all, I do see Jesus. I mean, I took that message to heart that the way that you treat another human being is the way that you're treating Jesus himself. I mean, that is scripture, right? And I learned early at, at Union, or at Door of Faith Mission in Des Moines Never judge a book by its cover. That guy that comes in and you think, wow, this guy's impressive and handsome and smart. And, you know, well, he may take you for all you got, right? But the guy that comes in scraggly and struggling um, and can't see, um, they experience a heart change and become a new creature before your eyes. So never let never let your eyes judge the book by its cover or the human being by their first appearance and I mean that that first guy that asked me for my uh, sandwich I think he was an angel I mean the scripture that you sometimes entertain angels unaware and I know that sounds freaky but he looked like John Perkins anybody know John Perkins <laughs> I was like is John Perkins knocking on my window because I went out after that, after I fed him that initial dinner, and I went out every Saturday night looking under the bridges and in abandoned buildings in Des Moines, Iowa for 10, for 10 years. 
And I'd, I'd go into abandoned buildings and find five guys, and they'd all move in the mission with me. I'd go out on, on the bridge over a river and talk a guy for 32 weeks in a row before he finally would come in. And I never found that guy ever, ever again. So I think it's scriptural to treat someone as if you're treating Jesus himself. And, um, you know, what are we even supposed to do for our enemies, right? What are, what are we supposed to do for our enemies? Love them, right? Pray for them. And uh, I, I've realized that more even this week. I, I just lectured somebody in my office about never, never make a strong judgment about somebody or say a strong judgmental thing about somebody or even a political statement. That's why I try to be as bipartisan as I can because why would you ever want to put up a barrier to the message or the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone? That, that's the only thing that's going to change them in their life is, is seeing, seeing the gospel in their life, seeing Christ in their life. And 25% uh, and of our staff are former guests who've had their lives changed. That's why I come to work every day. And I realized it the other night. So, we're, we're talking to a crowd of wealthy people up on stage, and it's Chris, Alex, and me, right? Alex came here 17 years ago after his dad overdosed on heroin, the day after he graduated from our program. So Alex's dad was in our program, graduated, and then went out and overdosed on heroin. Alex had a legal problem, so Alex knew where to come, came in here, his heart was changed, although he came at first, that handsome guy who's going to con you. His heart was changed. He's become a new creature. He shared Christ with these wealthy people in a way that I'd be a little shy about, right? So Alex shares Christ in a strong way. Chris comes up. He stole a bike to get here to, to join the program. Um, gang member, member, he showed everybody where he'd been shot several times. And... And before their eyes, he said, you know, it's all about Jesus. It's Christ has changed me. And I'm, I'm kind of like, I've, I've, be, I've been the expert on homelessness, but these guys are, you know, blowing everybody away with their testimony. But then I realized I'm one of them, right? I mean, for some reason, this is what I was attracted to doing, probably because of what my dad experienced and rubbed off on me. And I'm probably broken as much as anybody. And, uh, and now I, like, when I was in a wheelchair, it was an advantage. It was, like, it was like secret weapon. I could roll right up to drug deals. Nobody thought I was a policeman like they used to. And they'd carry on. And I was like one of the gang when I was in a wheelchair. And... Um, now I have a, I've lost a leg and suffered a little bit more like them, so I'm much more like I'd be more effective at Johnny's camp. I'm much more effective in, in my job here because I've suffered like they've suffered. The other night when I went out on that tour with those wealthy people, I slipped on a, on a fortunately it was a milkshake somebody had spilled, and I was going down, and you know who caught me? The, the biggest gangbanger in this area 
who said, I'm, I'm money, my name's money, and I'm in charge of this whole area, had a black cap on, pulled $5,000 out of his pocket, and I thought, yeah, you are in charge, because nobody else could flash $5,000 on Skid Row and survive. But he caught me, and he said, man, I love your videos, <laughs> and, and you have a great program. I might send my girlfriend in there, but I'm never coming in. <coughs> and you know, I mean, how do you react to money, right? What are, what are we supposed to do? Our graduate, Chris, got kind of offended that money wanted to help us hand out water. I said, no, no, let him, let him join us, right? Because who is that guy, right? He's us, right? He's Christ. I mean, that's, that's an extreme example, but, but even money is redeemable and, and is precious in God's sight. And, and he's lost, but, but he, he needs help. And I, I don't know why. Maybe I am mentally ill in my passion, but, but I, I need to be more like Christ every day. And I haven't, I honestly haven't met a person who's on the street that I haven't instantly loved, no matter how desperate they are. Uh, one good. One good story I have in in Iowa. Uh, Odie used to be one of the guys in the in the abandoned buildings, and Odie used to drink his check away with all of his buddies, his supposed buddies, right? Well, when they got down to no money at the end of the month, they would drink rubbing alcohol, and it was killing them. It was it was it causes them to go blind. It, it was killing them, and I, all of Odie's buddies came in, and I knew something was wrong because Odie wasn't with him. And I had, a, I had a feeling. And I went out into the um, grass, tall grass by Odie's building, and he was passed out drunk in the heat and likely gonna die. And this was, this was not me, right? Because I, I get sick when I think about human waste or anything. Odie was covered in human waste. So I picked him up, carried him to my car, put him in my car, drove him to the hospital, carried him into the hospital, and we're both covered in human waste. Believe me, that, that was not me. Odie got taken care of. He got sober. Last time I saw him, his, his blue eyes were shining and he was going into a group home. And his life was transformed. Nobody, nobody's ever too far gone. Uh, one of our buddies, Irwin, used to say, as long as, as, long as you're breathing, there's hope. And, uh, and that's what I believe, as long as somebody's breathing no matter what they've done. One, one final story about Iowa. I think Michael Sharp got introduced to me. He came into my office and he shared everything wrong he'd ever done in his life, including murder, right? For three hours. And I was sick to my stomach by the time his testimony of bad was over. And next thing I knew, I got called out to his house and he chained his arm to the door and he had a broken bottle to his throat he was beginning to cut. And the police called me to the scene and sent me in to, to convince him to unchain himself and drop the bottle. And I went to him and I, I talked him out of the chain and I talked him out of the bottle and the police turned him over to me. And 
I got him to go to Teen Challenge. And to, and to go to Teen Challenge, he had to go to the hospital to get an AIDS test it's, it's in the 80s. And we're sitting in the lobby of the hospital, and Michael is telling me that all he needs is a good woman. That's what a lot of people think. All I need is a good woman. And I looked at him, and on his arm was, I love you, Mary. I love you, Sue. I love you, Betty. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what woman in the world is going to love you, Michael? And boom, it hit me in my head. And it was like, Andy, I love Michael as much as I love you. When you've been, when, when you've been in heaven a thousand years singing in the choir, I won't love you any more than I love Michael right now. And, and Romans 5 says that when we were at our worst, right, Christ died for us. I mean, I don't want you to dwell on it, but think back when you were at your worst. Maybe it was Friday. <laughs> Christ won't love you anymore in heaven than he did when you were at your worst. And that's the way I believe he feels about the struggling people. And I know, I mean, you know, so many angry people are saying they've done it to themselves. This is self, you know, self-dealt uh, or self-indulged and and uh, leave them be. But, but even when I wanted to go out on the streets, people said, Andy, they've made a choice, let them be. And I said, well, they've made a choice out of no other choice. And I, I want to go out and offer them a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel, a little bit of hope. And maybe if they, you know, give life another try this time, I want to convince people to give life another try. And you can only do it through the love and community that Etta talked about. I'm so glad she got to speak. Um, I mean, we, we have people offer us millions of dollars if we'll drop our faith commitment and our faith statement, right? I mean, we turn down millions of dollars. But why would we allow ourselves to lose the power of Christ to transform lives for any amount. I mean, if you came in with a billion dollars, we'd say no, because why would we trade the power to transform lives in Christ for a billion dollars? I think what we're experiencing out on the streets is the weight of sin. And I'm not saying the weight of sin of the people on the streets. It's just the weight of sin of our society, the weight of wrong choices, the weight of not caring about people who are dying on the streets, our world is in huge trouble and somebody's got us, you know, the faithful people have always stayed faithful and who are going to be those faithful people following Christ who are, who are really living out Christ's love and compassion and, and, and knowing what's up is down and down is up. I'll say the reason why our city leaves 44,000 people to die on the streets while they eventually build 5,000 houses for 44,000 is because our world is not thinking clearly, right? I mean, you, they think we're weird because we're demanding immediate action. But I told all the missions in the United States yesterday, I said, we've got to stay faithful, not adjust to the politics. We have to stay faithful. They'll come to us, right, when this all doesn't work. They'll come to us, and, and what did I get today? I got a, um, there's a, there's a law group in LA, and they've been pushing me to sign on to get the streets swept of people, right? <clears throat> Where are they gonna sweep them to? That was my question. I'll sign on when you decide to 
make a place for everybody. Then worry about people and their stuff. And today I got the letter from the, from the um, law group. We're gonna change. We're gonna sue the city and the county to make a place for everybody to go. Well, are you in? And I said, I think I'll be in and we'll be in. I'll, I'll talk to our board of directors. So if you stay faithful, the only chance is if you stay faithful, the world will come back to sensible thinking. Don't join the world to, you know, better, to better influence the world. Join them where they're going because they are lost. As a, a pastor at church, we've had a homeless gentleman take part in our worship services for several weeks at a time. And just the culture clash makes it really difficult. And that has me like thinking and dreaming about like, I believe people who are chronically homeless and the culture that comes with that, I believe there should be churches for that. But we, I mean, our church is not designed for that. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Like, have you seen success in incorporating homeless folks into faith communities? Or does it always need to be in tandem with a, a mission like this? Or what do you think? So that was my job at historic Lake Avenue Church was to be the pastor of community outreach. And I was supposed to show up study the landscape for six months and and not do anything too crazy right <laughs> yeah. but when when i was moving in um two guys uh, uh who was my buddy that used to work here our, our van driver uh he was a former football player anyway darby and and i can't think of my other dwight darby and dwight they walked into my front yard right and they were living under the freeway bridge right by the, the church. And they welcomed me to, to town. And so I instantly, the first day I moved in, I made buddies with two guys that lived under the bridge. And um, then the church was all talking. This is my first, first go around there. So I came December 31st of 1999. And uh, everybody's talking about the Super Bowl and Kurt Warner. And he's, he's you know, quarterback from Iowa that, plays for St. Louis, and they're all going to have Super Bowl parties. And I thought to myself, I wonder where Herb and Dwight are going to mm -hmm. go for a Super Bowl party. Mm -hmm. So I got the idea to put on a Super Bowl party a little early because I'd been there a week, right? And uh, <laughs> I started taking out flyers all over town, uh, inviting people who were on the streets. And I went to Mountain Man in Pasadena, Lonnie, and I said, here's a flyer, come to our Super He says, man, we all heard about it. We're all coming. <laughs> so... Our ministry center, first time, maybe 100 people from the streets showed up, um, watched the Super Bowl together. I, I gave Kurt Warner's testimony at halftime, shut down the halftime uh, show, and uh, afterwards they stayed for Bible study. And out of that grew a homeless ministry. It got so big that the church had to invite us into the Sky Room, the nicest place in the church on Sunday nights. And it was interesting because this historic church just started having people in the congregation and pretty accepted every meal, every Sunday night meal. Um, there was one episode where I was supposed to be the host of the Monday Thursday service. And my buddy Johnny Redbone walked in drunk beyond belief with vodka. And when he sat down in the row, I mean, the, the whole place smelled like vodka. And I got nervous about 
getting embarrassed by my friend Johnny. And uh, a psychologist bailed me out because he grabbed Johnny, right? Caring, loving guy. Sat him in his seat. He said the whole, the whole row got drunk from Johnny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he helped me manage Johnny while I led the, mm-hmm. led the service. And, and I walked home because I lived in the parsonage uh, afterwards. And Johnny shows up on my porch and he just sits down beside me and he says, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. I accepted Christ in my heart tonight. So here I am embarrassed by Johnny and then ashamed of myself because it took a buddy of mine to bail me out. But, but I'm telling you, I just heard a message about this. They said they have opened their church to homeless people. And when somebody has an episode, they tolerate. They tolerate the, you know, speaking back and the disruption because they said that's who, mm-hmm. that's who we're there for, right? I mean, that's who Jesus came to die for. He didn't come for our, our uh, version of a, of a traditional, quiet observance, you know, sober, uh, worship service, and I, I mean that. I heard that. That was convicting to me, right? Um, that's one way to do it. The other, other way to do it is train your congregation to handle those episodes in a kind, loving way. I, I was attending next door at the at the church. Um, I used to be on their board, uh, the, the uh, Nazarene Church on the corner. I can't think of its name right now. Uh, but this is early on before I was even working here. And uh, a six foot four meth addict, uh, or, or maybe maybe he was on, uh, what is the other one? Uh, PCP that made people act out so bad? I think he was on PCP. He attacked the pastor. Pastor looked just like Martin Luther King Jr. He's a buddy of mine. And I was a high school wrestler and a boxer and a karate champion. And so I tackled the six foot four guy and uh, drug him out of, of the church onto the sidewalk and broke my, you can still see my, my broken finger there at the tip. But I, I said that was the most fun I'd ever had at church. <laughs> so you, you might have to train some people to handle it, but, yeah. you just do it. but you do it. I mean, that church next door is all homeless people. I, I, I think probably our Faithful Central is mostly homeless people, wow. right? But people, people do it. And I'm sure it's a it's a rare congregation that will adapt. But but Lake Avenue did. Yeah. They are the Lake Avenue is the church that promoted homogeneous unit principle. Anybody ever heard of that? That if you want to build a church and grow a church, church growth in the night mm. was it eighties yeah. or nineties? Yeah. So the more you do like people, right. the faster it'll grow. It came out of Lake Avenue Church. Yeah. I went there as the pastor of community outreach to take that on, right? And I, in one of my first board meetings, I shared Jerem Bars from, from Covenant Seminary's statement that, that um, homogeneous unit principle is a lie from the pits of hell <laughs> and goes against everything John 17 mm-hmm. says. You know, you all will be one, mm-hmm. right? That means I, all, everybody. And other people have different. Yeah. Keith, Keith Phillips from World Impact used to teach, you know, if you work 
would see people go all out after all see people, right? <clears throat> Just the opposite. But I don't think that's I don't think that's what the New Testament church should look like, and I don't think that's a successful yeah. model. I, I think the the more diverse we become, the better the better we are, and that includes the poorest of the poor, who, who I believe represent Jesus Himself. So, yeah. Yeah. most are most are thrilled with what I do, but I've had some real criticism, and I, like the worst thing the neighbors could do, I didn't tell you this whole story, but I said 34 neighborhood beatings, 1.9 million dollars legal battles, battle with the county supervisor. The worst thing the neighbors could say to me was, we don't want your kind of people in our neighborhood. And I think you all know what they meant by that, right? And I took great offense. I, I, I made a mistake fighting the neighborhood battle. I made a mistake. I called out their racism. And I got attacked brutally for calling out what was real. And uh, it was so funny because a woman, this is another mistake I made, a woman got up and said, we don't like the demographics of your people, right? And I said, oh, it's not racism, it's demographicism. <laughs> and I did not receive a, a accolades for saying that. <laughs> but, uh, but that's the worst, I mean, I, it was something in my dad, right, that got passed down. Uh, when my dad traveled those freight cars as a kid, and he's four years old hanging on his dad's neck as he climbed in the freight car, and he said, and his dad said, Carl, you're hanging on to me too tight, you're choking me in car. And my dad said, you're, you know, I don't have anything else to hold on to. Well, while they were in that freight car, the railroad detective looked in, tough railroad detective looked in, saw only dark faces, right? So he locked it airtight to kill everybody inside. And my grandpa had a knife, and all the men and my grandpa worked together to dig a hole in the side of the rail car and ask for help in another town, and they all escaped. But my dad knew he was no better than anybody else, right? And I was raised to know I'm no better than nobody else. So the worst thing you can do to me is mistreat uh, another human being. And, and think about it. I didn't finish with Matthew 25. What's the worst thing you could do to a parent? Hurt their child. Hurt their child, right? I mean, whose child are we? God, right? Well, Andy, so um, maybe to wrap up, would you be willing to offer uh, a benediction or a charge to them? For every one of them, the stories that they would share, um, it would be stories that seem as hopeless and as foolish as this place, you know, in the eyes of the world. Yeah. To pursue... Uh, to the ends of the earth, the kind of people that they want to pursue. Mm -hmm. You want to pray? Yeah. All right. Lord, thank you for these uh, precious servants of yours and brothers and sisters and you and, and uh, your people for your time in a city and for some young man or woman who's given up all hope Your, your Jesus to them. And I pray for special protection and strength and wisdom and 
your love because only your love can can do it and can weather it and, and uh, help them Lord to be surrounded by a loving community and not not do it alone help them to uh, seek help when they need it and uh, just remind them every day that you're the true hope and true help and the true source of power and strength and uh, what is true what is good and uh, help them to find the soulmate they may need to to make it through the battle and Lord uh, just shock them with your strength and power and, and bring them friends from just the middle of nowhere who pour into their life and bless them with resources. Lord, thank you for their thank you for their crazy ideas that uh, their their mental health that's similar to mine. They, they are the people that are going to change this world with your your gospel, your still very true, overwhelming, loving gospel. And like, like me, Lord, work on them every day to make them more like you, no matter what it takes to, to make them reflect your love to such a desperate world. And, and in their case, a desperate place in this desperate world. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and uh, we need you, and, and you're our everything. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.